You know, we're tempted in the kingdom to really wonder how significant our faithfulness is. I, th- I think for most of us, when we think about faithfulness in the life of the kingdom, we think faithfulness is solely an us problem. We think that if we are unfaithful, that really and essentially we're only damaging ourselves. We're only damaging our relationship with the Lord. We're only damaging what God would have for us to do. And so we're tempted in anonymity to fade into the background of the church, to fade into the background of the kingdom, and to ultimately not do anything because we don't really believe that what we have to do in the kingdom is of all of that great of an importance. I can remember a man and our pastor, he told us the story of this man when I was a teenager growing up, and his name has always stuck with me, a man man by the name of Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a dry goods salesman in the Boston area in the late 1800s. And Edward Kimball was tasked in his church with the responsibility to teach Sunday school to the teenage boys. Now, I don't know how many of y'all have ever taught teenage boys uh, in Sunday school, and God bless them, it's not the most um, thankful of work, right? Appreciated work in the life of the church. But Edward Kimball decided that what he was going to do is he was going to resolve to teach this class with all of his might as an offering to the Lord. And there was a a particular young man, a young man that he would later come to describe as having the darkest mind of any person that he had ever come into contact with. And this young man had lived a very difficult life, a life of of total and utter poverty, a, a life in which he was estranged from his father and lived with his mother and essentially had been kicked out. And the only reason that he was living, he was coming and attending that particular church was that his uncle had agreed to give him a job, and if he would come to Boston, he, could, he would give him a job so that he'd have, be able to provide for himself and elevate his, his st- standing in the world. But the condition was is that he had to go to church, and he had to go to Sunday school. And so Kimball, as he watched and observed this particular young man, what he began to realize was this is a man that was far from God. This was a young man that didn't have any clue about the gospel, didn't have any clue about having a relationship with God, any clue about having redemption from God. And so Kimball became resolved that he was going to reach this young man. And so he goes to the shoe store, the uncle's shoe store, where the young man was working. And, and Kimball later acknowledges that, that even as he was standing there at the door, he was beginning to lose his nerve as he could see the young man working. And he thought, I can't disturb him in his work. I, I don't want to make it awkward. I, I don't want to put him on the spot. And he said, I sat there and I was about to turn away and I knew that the Lord would have me to go in. And so he goes in and he begins to share the gospel and what would be an apparent exercise in futility with this young man. And the young man begins to weep. And the young man professes faith and repents of his sins and begins to follow after Jesus. And that young man is a man by the name of Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody. He was the most prominent American evangelist of the 19th century. He founded Moody Bible College and Moody Church in Chicago. Most estimates place that the number of people that profess faith in Christ under Moody's preaching is in excess of one million people. And it boils down to a single man, a dry goods salesman that probably none of you have ever heard of before, who was resolved to teach teenage boys Sunday school week in and week out to go and to share the gospel with the darkest kid in his class. 
And so for us, for us, we can, we can be tempted to try to fade into the background and to think that our faithfulness or unfaithfulness doesn't affect another person. But how many people would have been affected by Kimball's unfaithfulness? How many people would have been affected had Edward Kimball not went and reached Dwight Moody with the gospel so that Dwight Moody then in turn went and reached his millions? How many? You see, brothers and sisters, God has a detailed plan. God has a detailed plan. God has a plan that is so detailed in which he knows the number of days in your life and the number of hairs on your head. And you are a part of the plan. You are a part of the plan of the Lord to let his glory come, to let his kingdom be established on this earth. And the question comes before every one of us as we consider the magnitude of who's your one is, will you be faithful or will you be unfaithful? Will someone be reached through you or will those the world not hear of Christ because of you? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to hear about two disciples that we haven't heard much about. These are two of the lesser known disciples, but I think it's very, very helpful for us. John chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 43. Would you stand with me so we read God's word together? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So 2,000 years ago, something took place 7,000 miles from here that's still affecting the way that we live today. Have you ever stopped to think about that? 2,000 years ago, something took place 7,000 miles from here that's still affecting the way that we live today. And this is how Jesus said that the kingdom would be built. If you remember back into Matthew chapter 13 when we talked about that, he gives a parable, two parables of the kingdom. He says the, par- the, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed that, that he could talk about. And he said it's like a mustard seed that is planted in the midst of a garden that becomes a tree so vast that it's able to become a refuge for the nations. He says the, the mustard likewise is, the, the kingdom is likewise like a bit of leaven. You put this bit of leaven into the midst of a lump and it seems so small that it's insignificant and unable to do anything. But over time, that leaven begins to permeate the whole loaf. And so Christ says this is how the kingdom will be. That the kingdom will begin 2,000 years ago, 7,000 miles away in a tiny town of Jerusalem on the outskirts. There will be a baby born in Bethlehem that will be crucified outside of Jerusalem, placed in a tomb, and then he will raise again. And from those humble beginnings, 
from that tiny manger in Bethlehem, the kingdom will come and the kingdom will be established and it will begin as though it is leaven in the midst of a lump, but before it is all said and done, before the king returns to his kingdom, the whole earth will be permeated, filled with his glory. The whole earth will be filled with his worshipers. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of his presence. The whole earth will be filled that he is the most wonderful name, the name that is above all names, the name before which we will bow and praise his name. And the question is, is how does it get to us and how does it get to them? How did the kingdom come to us and how does the kingdom get to where he's saying it's going to go? How is it that the kingdom will be built? How is it that Jesus' plan to revolutionize the world and to transform all of the world into a kingdom for his own glory, how is that going to take place? He's told us that it will, so how will it? And the method that Jesus has decided to use is us. Is us. The gospel guide to you that... Now, you, might, you guys can correct me. I don't think we have anybody outside of the 80s. We might be cruising in the 90s. So I don't think any of y'all were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Now, if some of y'all, if, if some of y'all were there, let's, let's have lunch. I like, I've got some questions. That means that the gospel came to you from someone, right? That what happened all those years ago, that moment in which we divide time in history, that moment got to you through messenger after messenger after messenger, generation after generation after generation. But we aren't to be a cul-de-sac of grace. We're to be a conduit. It's not to come to us and stop. It's to come to us and go through us. That not only has one generation passed the gospel to us, but it is now our responsibility to pass the gospel to the next generation that we get to take part in building this kingdom out of the living stones, that we get to take part in the leaven of the gospel permeating the whole globe and permeating every corner of our own community. That Jesus' plan was and Jesus' plan is to transform the whole world into his kingdom and his method to accomplish this transformation is you and me. So this morning, that's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at how Jesus is transforming the world through us. How Jesus is changing the world through us. And the first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus sends us. That Jesus sends us. Now, if you'll notice in our text... Whenever you're, you're studying the Bible, it's important to try to figure out exactly what that particular author is trying to communicate. And he's usually going to give you some hints with the words that he's using. And if you'll notice in about two verses, we get the word found three times. Did you guys see that? There's a lot of finding happening up in this passage, right? So, so first of all, Jesus found Nathaniel. Uh, Jesus found Philip. Then it says Philip found Nathanael. And then when Philip finds Nathanael, he tells him, we have found him. We have found him. We have found the one that we've been looking for. And John, from the beginning, is trying to communicate to us an understanding of how it is that Christ bears witness to one who bears witness on his behalf. That the finding that Christ does, the seeking that Christ does, will be accomplished through the sending of his people. And this goes all the way back to the core of what John is trying. The whole gospel of John is to bear witness. 
That the intent of the Gospel of John is to bear witness. It talks about these signs. You get these seven signs in the Gospel of John. For what reason? He gives us these signs that you may know. That you may know that the one who came, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. That Jesus of Nazareth is the greater Moses. That Jesus of Nazareth is the one who is the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the prophets. In the prologue, what we call the prologue, in those first few verses of John, John sets it up like this. He says that, Belief, he says in verse 112, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who received him, to all who believe, you remember what he says. He says, The word becomes flesh, or he says before, it's before he says, The word becomes flesh, but he says, He goes to his own people, and his own people reject him. His own people turn him away. His own people don't want him. He said, But not everybody. Some will receive him, some will believe upon him. And to those who receive him, to those who believe upon him, he gives the right to become the children of God. That is, that when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you become a son of God. When you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you become a child of God. You become a daughter of God. And therein, you receive the right, the right of the authority to go out as Christ has went out. To go out and to preach as Christ has preached. To go and to bring the kingdom into full consummation as Christ has come to bring the kingdom. That you go as a son of God with the rights as the children of God to go and to bear witness that you have found the Christ. So as you read throughout the Gospel of John, the word believe, we get John 3, 16, right? The word believe comes back to us again and again, and it is coming back to you again and again, this concept of bearing witness. I believe, and now I have an authority because I am a child. I go as a child, and I have the rights and the responsibility to take Jesus' mission as my mission and to go in Jesus' authority with Jesus' message. And so if you think about the way that Philip responds to the call that Jesus comes. It's completely different than what we saw in Matthew chapter 4 a few weeks ago, isn't it? You remember when we talked about when those calling those first four disciples of Peter, Andrew, James, and John? And they're out and they've been fishing all night long and Jesus comes up to them and says, follow me. And you remember what they do? They, they, they leave the boat. It says James, uh, Peter and Andrew, they, they leave the boat behind and immediately they go and they follow Jesus. And with James and John, he says, he goes and they're mending their nets and they're cleaning their nets and they're preparing their nets. And he goes and he says, follow me. And immediately they leave behind their nets and they go and they follow after Jesus. But it doesn't say anything like that here, does it? In fact, the only way that we know that Philip actually agrees to follow Jesus is how? The way that John confirms that Philip has accepted the call of Jesus is he confirms it by pointing out to us that the very next thing that Philip does is he goes to his friend. That he goes and he shares Christ. That he goes and he says to Nathaniel, we have found him. We have found him. You need to come too. That is, that what we see is that our belief will be marked by going. That's what John's trying to teach us. That, that following means going. That if I'm going to follow after Christ, and I'm going to go where Christ is sending me, I'm going to do what Christ is calling, that Christ is going to call me, and then Christ is going to send me. I am going to go as Christ has come. That following means going. And if following means going, let me ask you a question. Are you following? Are you following? 
Have you taken up uh, your responsibility in the kingdom? Have you went forth with your right as a child of God? Have you went forth with a bringing of the kingdom in your family and in your community and in your workplace and to the ends of the earth? Have you done that? See, there's a whole generation of Christians that would say, but I believe, but I believe, but I believe. I believe. I don't live like I should. In fact, I hardly live it at all, but I do believe it. I do believe that Jesus is this Messiah. I do believe that Jesus died for my sin. I do believe that he has pardoned me from my sin. I believe. I believe. But what John is driving home in his gospel is that you can't quote John 3.16 and say that you believe unless you are willing to be sent. Unless you are willing to go. That to believe is to go. To believe is to follow, and to follow is to be sent. Have you been sent? Are you going? So not, not only does Jesus find, uh, find Philip and say, follow me, but then Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. And, I, and what I like about this is, I don't know about you, but Philip basically undoes every good excuse that I have not to evangelize. Philip basically unravels all of the things that we can go and say. Remember, what do we say? Well, I just don't have all the answers. You know, I just don't know enough. I, what if they ask me a question? I haven't been a Christian very long. I'm not the most mature Christian in the world. Like, I don't know the Bible inside. I haven't got Philippians memorized yet. You know, like, I haven't studied any kind of presentations. Like, like what hope do I have to go and reach my one? And here's Philip. And Philip's like known about Jesus for about 10 minutes. For about 10 minutes. And what does he do? He goes and he says, we found him. We found him. We have found the one we've been looking for. We have found the Messiah. We I don't know how it happened to me, Nathaniel, but I found your Savior. I found him. I guarantee whatever you know about the New Testament, you know more than Nathaniel knew. Whatever you know about Jesus, you know more than Nathaniel knew. Whatever questions you can answer about the gospel, you can answer more of them than Nathaniel could. And yet Nathaniel went unraveling the excuses for not going in our own lives. Jesus called and Philip multiplied. Jesus called and Philip multiplied. And that's the shape of the Christian life. That's the shape of the Christian mission. That's the method by which Jesus is seeking to change the world, an unstoppable movement of multiplying disciples that can't help but bear witness about him. See, that's, that's, that's why here we're not concerned with making converts. Con converts spring up quickly and then fade away. Converts spring up and they're there for a second and then as quickly as they come, they leave, they, they fade away. But disciples, disciples, they take root and they spread. Disciples take root and they spread. Disciples multiply to the next generation. You see, Iron City, we're not aiming here at church attendance records. That's not what we're aiming at. That's not our target on the wall. We're not aiming to exceed last year's baptism. That, that's not the target that's on the wall. We're not aiming to see how many people that we can get to check a card or raise a hand. That, that, that's not what the target on the wall is. What we're aiming to see is how many disciples can we make? How can we invest the gospel in this generation so that this generation invests in the next generation so that we can perpetuate the gospel that we have received, so that we can spread it, so that we can increase it. See, disciples, disciples reach their kids and their grandkids and transform the next generation.
Disciples bring their friends to faith and their community to faith. And so when you become a disciple maker, not a church attendance maker. I don't know about y'all. I don't get excited about being a church attendance maker. Not, not being a baptism counter, but a disciple maker, maker. You are seeing the seedlings of family cycles and generational advancement. You are seeing the seedlings of kingdom transformation that begins with only one person. Only one person. You sit there and you wonder, what difference does it make if I'm faithful or not? Look at how different your grandkids will be if you invest in your children the gospel right now versus if you don't. And wonder how much impact you can make. Go and reach one daddy. One daddy. Just reach one daddy with the gospel over the whole of your life and you have started a new family cycle. You have broken the old chains of what he inherited. You have broken the alcoholism that he knows and the abuse that he saw and the abandonment that he realized. You have broken down the devils of divorce in his life so that his kids grow up hearing the gospel week in and week out and five generations out, man, the impact is still running true. And you wonder, what impact can one person make? We're just talking about counting, not much. We're just talking about Duncan, not much. We're talking about making disciples. We're talking about shaping the lives of people into the lives of Jesus. We're talking about generational transformation. We're talking about changing the trajectory of families. We're talking about changing the culture of a community. What started in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, what climaxed on Golgotha when, the, when the, the, the Christ declared that it is finished is being declared today and that which spread from then can spread from us now. can spread from us now. That Jesus is leading a kingdom revolution and Jesus is intent to lead this revolution through me and through you. And so finally... He says, when he gets to Nathaniel, we have found him. We, we have found him. And you know, when you find Jesus, you find what you're looking for, don't you? When you find Jesus, you find what you're looking for. They had been looking for Jesus. They had been looking, not for him specifically, but for a Messiah that Moses had told him about, that Moses had promised, that the law had propped up, the one that would be the greater Moses, that would meet face to face on their behalf. They had heard what Isaiah had said about the, the suffering servant and all the glorious servant songs. They had known what Jeremiah and Ezekiel had written about the new covenant. They knew all of these things, and here they were in, in uh, total oppression under Rome awaiting the return of a king after 400 years of silence and they're on the edge of their seat and they're looking and they're looking and they're looking and day in and day out there's hopelessness day in and day out there's no answer day, out, day in and day out they go to work, they come home and they're just as worn out and just as oppressed as they were the day before until Jesus goes to Philip and he says Philip Philip, follow me. And Philip sees him and he knows. He knows this is him. This is him. Can I, can I just take an aside and just give a side note here? The only way they knew who Jesus was was because of the Old Testament. The Old Testament in our day is under attack. 
It is believed to be a God of a different religion, the, the book, the sacred writings of a different people. But the only way, the only way that these first disciples of Jesus knew that Jesus was who he said he was, was because they had the Old Testament. And so we cannot have this faith of ours where we say, I'm going to dismiss the Old Testament and hold true to the teachings of Jesus because without the Old Testament, we wouldn't even know who Jesus is. And that sets up the series that we're going to start in two weeks called The Big Story. We're going to start in Genesis and go to Revelation as long as it takes, and we're going to show you where Jesus is all the way through from start to finish so that we can have the hope of the gospel. And as we read, and what we see represented here in Nathaniel and in Philip is the groaning of creation that Romans 8 talks about. Romans 8 says that because of the curse of the world, that the whole earth is groaning. It's longing to be redeemed. It's longing and groaning that the, that the curse of sin would be removed from it. And it's an exercise in futility until Christ has come. And you know, we are part of that creation that groans, aren't we? We are part of that creation that groans. That we're looking. We're looking for the answers and we're looking and trying to figure out exactly how we fit and why we matter and how all of this comes together. And that's why Christians have no room for self-righteousness. Is we are no different from the unreached world that we so often tend to look down our noses upon as though we have the moral high ground. We are no different from them. The only difference between us and them is that they are lost and we have been found. You see, addicts, addicts are addicts because they're looking. Adulterers are adulterers because they're looking. Those who are power hungry and selfish and materialistic, they are those things because they're hungry. They're, they're looking for hope and they're looking for freedom and they're looking for happiness. They're looking for how they fit and why they matter. And so when they find Jesus, when we find Jesus, immediately we know we have found what we have been looking for. That's the point. See, Jesus sought out Philip and Jesus sought out Nathanael, but their story was different. Same hope, different story. Jesus came and sought out Philip directly, but how did he seek out Philip? Through Nathanael. I mean, through, he sought Nathanael through Philip. And how do you think that the people that you work with, how is Jesus seeking them? How is Jesus seeking your children? How is Jesus seeking your husband? How is Jesus seeking your teammates? How is Jesus seeking those people whose names we don't know at the ends of the earth? How is Jesus seeking them? Because he is seeking them. He is seeking them through us, through me, through you, through the witness of Iron City Baptist Church. Jesus is sending you because he is seeking them. Jesus is sending you because he is seeking them. Who's Jesus going to find through you? Who is Jesus going to find through you? Will your daughter find Jesus through you? Will your coworker be found by Jesus through you? Will your best friend that you go and yuck it up with at the water cooler every single day but talk about nothing of substance, will, he, will Jesus find him through you? Jesus is seeking your little girl and Jesus is seeking your buddy and Jesus is seeking your colleague and he is seeking them through you. So Jesus sends us. That's how he's going to change the world. 
But Jesus doesn't just send us, Jesus secures us. Jesus secures us. Now, if you think about the conversation that Philip has with Nathaniel, this is like worst case scenario evangelism, okay? This is like code red, mayday evangelism. Why? He asks a question. He asks a question. If you go and you talk to people that, about sharing their faith, you know the first thing, they, what if they ask me a question? Well, that just might happen, might it? They just might ask a question. And so Philip, he goes to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel responds, and, and here's what he wants. This is what Philip wants. What every single person wants is they want a big, sudden uh, tears to fall from their eyes, for them to fall to their knees and raise their hands and say, Give me Jesus. But Nathaniel looks and he says, How in the world can anything good come out of Nazareth? That must have blessed Philip. That'll rain on your parade. That, that'll cut the teeth out of your evangelistic zeal. Because what's, what's he saying? Look, I, I've, I know the script. I know what Moses has written. I know what the prophets have said. And none of them ever talked about Nazareth. None of them ever met. So, so I've got some doubts. I've got some questions. You say that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the King of the Jews that we've been waiting for, and I'm going to have to know, hear more than that. I've got, to have, I've got to have more evidence than that. I've got to have more proof than that. And Philip, with about 30 minutes of evangelistic training, being his walk over to find his buddy, responds in the most profound way. He should have a PhD in evangelism right out of the gate. You know what he says? He doesn't go, well, you weren't supposed to ask a question. That's not in the outline I memorized. Oh, goodness, you know. You know what he says? He says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. You come and see Jesus. You come and verify for yourself. You come and investigate for yourself. You come to Jesus and you see if what I'm telling you is the truth. You come to Jesus and you see if he's not the one you've been looking for. You come to Jesus and you see if he's not the one that can reset your whole life and change who you are and where you're going. If he's not the one that can let you know who you are and why you're here and why you matter. You come to Jesus and you see for yourself. He's actually repeating what Jesus had told to the disciples just before that. When John says in chapter 1 verse 39 that Jesus goes to Peter and he says, Come and see, guys. Come and see. Come and find, come and follow me and see if I am the Messiah or not. You see, what we have to remember is that evangelism doesn't require people to check their intellect at the door. Reaching people with the gospel doesn't mean they have to stop thinking. They need, in fact, Jesus isn't turned off by their questions. Jesus invites them. Jesus invites people to come and to investigate his claims. We don't have to steamroll people to the gospel. We just invite them to come. We invite them to come and to, to study. We invite their questions, and we invite them to, to walk with us toward Jesus. And I want you to consider the assurance and the security that he has to have in his gospel to be able to say that to them. Like, for, for Philip to go to Nathaniel and to say, well, come and see. He has to be certain that when, when Nathaniel comes and sees, he won't look like a fool. He has to be certain that when Nathaniel comes and sees that Jesus will show up and that Jesus will verify that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he's going to do. That he has to have a security. And you see, I think with our results-driven evangelism, we have short-circuited come-and-see evangelism. 
We've asked people to check their questions and their intellect at the door and to respond to a feeling that we can't reproduce, a feeling that they pursue over the whole of their life that they never are able to discover again, an emotion that following Jesus is something that I feel and it's something that I must, must, must not think about and must not realize, but rather something that I experience and feel so that if I can just stop uh, thinking so much and start feeling more. That intimacy with God is about a feeling. And what you discover, what you discover is that feelings don't last. Emotions fade away. And all you're left with are your thoughts. All you're left with is what you think. All you're left with is your doubts. And so in pursuing our, our steamroll evangelism, our, our pursuit to, to increase our, our effects and in, in, increase our results, we've ran through people and unbeknownst to us, even well-meaning as we are, we have undercut and undersold the gospel by making it look as though the gospel can't hold up under scrutiny. Oh, but the gospel can. We do not have an insecure gospel. I don't know what better news to give you as a Christian than that today. We do not have an insecure gospel. And it will take time for someone to come and to hear the gospel and to understand the gospel and to respond to the gospel. I don't know about y'all. It took me three years. Three years of somebody sharing the gospel with me every single week. Three years before I could really come and to understand that Jesus was who he was and that I am who he says that I am and that I needed him. This is not a three strikes and you're out. This is not a let me share it one day at dinner and, and move on from it when they say no. This is an investment of, of constantly inviting them. Let's investigate this together. Let, let's seek this out together. Let's invite them to come and to see. And so when we talk about, when we talk about reaching out to your one, we're talking about not running from the questions but running into the questions running deep into the questions, that our goal is not to, to produce fledgling, insecure converts. Our goal is to, to secure uh, anchored, anchored, fastened, held on to secure disciples of Jesus who can walk to the valley of the shadow of death and know their shepherd is there with them. It's a different process. It's a different process. See, when, when our world has questions about sexual ethics... And why the Bible says what it says? We don't need to run from that question. We need to run into it. The gospel is not intimidated by that question. The gospel is not somehow immediately unraveled by that question. When, when, when the world asks, and it's a serious question, it's an important question. When your children come and they ask you, well, why aren't we still stoning the adulterers and, and offering up the, the lamb, but we are still saying that homosexuality is a sin? It's not a question you can run from. Better be a question that says, come and see. Let's investigate that together. Let's understand it because there is thinking out there now that that question alone dismisses all of the gospel. And instead, it's the gospel that shows how powerful and wonderful it is an opportunity for you to show how Christ is the fulfillment and he is the one that will allow you to live a life of holiness that you can't otherwise live. Let's lean into the questions, church. Let, let's walk with people toward Jesus. 
Let's, let's walk with them and not ask them to check their intellect at the door, but rather to teach them that there is no subject in which you can indulge the intellect greater than the subject of God, the worship of God. I bet this morning, I bet there is somebody, a teenager, a spouse that got drugged here, there's somebody and you have questions. And all of your life, all you've heard is about what you're supposed to feel and you've just never felt it. All you've heard your whole life is this emotional, emotionally driven call to cry and to lay prostrate before the Lord and you've never felt it. And you've got questions that nobody's been willing to wrestle with. Can I just invite you to come and see? Come and see. That the invitation that Philip gave to Nathaniel that day is the same invitation that Jesus is giving to you this day. Come and see. Let's talk about it. Let's walk through those questions. Let's acknowledge that they're there. And let me suggest to you that I believe that when you investigate the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the claims of the gospel, that you will find that there is no worldview in existence today that is more plausible, more rational, or more wonderful than this one. That brings us to the final point that I want us to see this morning is that Jesus sends us. Jesus secures us and Jesus supplies us. Jesus sends us, secures us, and Jesus supplies us. Now, you have to remember, Nathaniel goes to Philip and he says, come and see. And we just talked about how awesome that is, but Nathaniel, I mean, but Philip really doesn't know how all this is going to work out, does he? He knows that he is confident that Jesus is who he says he is. He, he is confident that Jesus is the Messiah. But the truth is, is that when he invites Nathaniel to come and see, he really doesn't know what the plan is after that. He knows what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't know what all the details are yet. He doesn't know what it's going to look like. And so here comes Philip and Nathaniel, and they're going to see Jesus. And as soon as they are within earshot, Jesus calls out and he says, Hey, I didn't know that there was somebody with integrity out of out of uh, Galilee. Well, that'll get you. That'll, or out of Jerusalem. That'll bless you, won't it? And, and he's, he's there, and, and immediately, Nathaniel, like, you imagine him just freezing, right? He's like, How in the world? You don't know me. You don't know me. And Jesus says, oh, yes, I do. You were sitting under the fig tree, a place where people in the first century often sat to contemplate deep truth a place where they would often go and sit in the shade, and it was symbolic of sitting under the, the teaching of God, sitting under the authority of God, sitting under the refuge of God. And they're there, and, they're, and, he's stu- and they would sit, and they would read the law. And he says, I saw you. I saw you sitting under the fig tree contemplating these things. I saw you sitting under the fig tree wondering about all. I knew you. I saw where you were before Philip. I sent Philip. I'm seeking you. And Nathaniel was overcome. We don't know all the details of what all that looked like, but Nathaniel knew it was information that God and God alone could have. And he says, surely you are the Son of God. Surely you are the King of of the Jews. Surely you are the one that Philip has said you are. See, Philip was sent by Jesus' Jesus' authority, and Philip was supplied by Jesus' sovereignty. He was sent by Jesus' authority and he was supplied by Jesus' sovereignty. That's how, brothers and sisters, we can be certain that our efforts are not futile. 
The way that you can be certain that your going is not in vain is that God is already sovereign in your going. God has already promised to supply you in your going. God already knows the details of who you're going to and what they're going to, how they're going to respond and what you're going to. God already knows. And God being sending you in His authority and He is sending you into the plan of His own sovereignty. So the success of the mission has already been secured. The success of the mission has already been secured. How bold would you be if you knew that everything that you were going to try to do was going to be successful? I mean, if we could guarantee victory to our troops and no casualty, how courageous would they be? Now look, this doesn't mean that every person that you're going to share the gospel with is going to be saved. That's not what this means. What this means is, is that it, when you are faithful to sow, when you are faithful to live out the mission of Jesus, to go and to seek out those who are lost, that they might be saved, when you are faithful as a disciple to seek to multiply and to make disciples, that every single purpose that God has designed to accomplish through you, every single design that God has to work in you and in your mind and in your faith and in your life and through you, that His kingdom might come, every single one of those purposes will be accomplished. Not a single one will fall flat. Not a single one will fail because our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. Our God has already, already knows what's coming, has already been there and is already there right now. Our God is the one who is reigning over every single one. And so, Jesus is asking Nathaniel, and he's asking us, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you really believe, you think that if I just, by me just telling you where you were sitting, that's enough for you to believe that I'm the son of God? Oh, oh friend, do you really believe? Because if you really believe, if you will go as a child of God with the rights and the responsibilities as my son, you haven't even begun to see what you're going to see. You will see the nations converging in the kingdom. You will see a ladder greater than Jacob's ladder. In fact, you will see the Son of Man Himself and heaven will descend through the Son and mankind will ascend through the Son. You will see people transformed. You will see communities change. You haven't even begun to see. Do you believe? Aren't you tired of a mediocre, flat-lined Christian life? Are you tired of it? Aren't you tired of being an ordinary American plotting your way toward death? Do you believe? Do you believe? Because Jesus will not send you where he will not supply you. Jesus will not send you where he will not supply you. And the degree of confidence and faith that you have in that statement will determine the degree of faithfulness in your life. That the more confident that you are that Jesus will supply you where he sends you, the more you will see, the more you will know, the more you will love, the more you will enjoy your relationship with God. George Mueller and his wife lived in the 1800s and they uh, became burdened about the orphan situation in Britain. 
And so they would just began having no idea how they were going to take care of them. They just began to take in orphans and, and just off the street and bring them into their house and just love them and minister to them and feed them. And they, didn't, they weren't people of means and didn't have a, a long nest egg that they could dip into or a family inheritance. And so they would be there and every orphan that would come, they would just say, well, come on. Well, come on. Before he knew it, he had built an orphanage. And Mueller never received any government funding, and he never solicited a dollar from a single person. And yet over the course of his life, over one and a half million dollars in current U.S. dollars filtered through his hands. Over the course of his life, more, he, he and his wife personally cared for more than 10,000 orphans. They built 117 schools where more than 120,000 young people received a Christian education. He said that often they, in his autobiography, often they would come to the table. They would be unsure how they were going to eat that day. And he said he could remember one specific instance where he and all the children of the house came and they gathered around the dinner table and they had no supper prepared, no bread to eat, no, no water to drink. He said, but I gathered the family and we gathered around the table and we began to ask the blessing anyway. And we prayed that God, we prayed thanks to God for his provision. And we prayed that God would, would again bless the food that he was going to give it, even though we didn't have a single dish to put on the table. And he said that once he closed the prayer in Jesus' name, he heard a knock on the door. And at, when he went to answer the door, the baker was there with enough bread so that every single person would eat without having any hunger left over. And he said while he was sitting there and he was dealing with the baker, all of a sudden there was a crash outside. And he said, I walked outside of my door and crashed in front of my house was the milkman who gladly provided all the milk to the whole family so that it wouldn't spoil. If God had rained the bread from heaven, it wouldn't have been more miraculous. And Mueller wrote in his diary on that day, in reflection upon what God had done, the Lord not only gives as much as is absolutely necessary for his work, but he gives abundantly. And I wonder this morning, do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that God will supply you where he has sent you? If God doesn't show you what's going to sit on the table for your family, would you be willing to gather and to pray a prayer of blessing over the meal that is yet to come? Would you be confident that if God has shown you a, a friend that you're burdened for, a, a loved one that needs the gospel, and you have no idea how they will respond to the gospel, will you just trust, oh God, if they hate me, if they revile me, if I am, they are repulsed by me, I will go because I am confident that you will supply me where you have sent me. Because if you will go, if you will go, you will see greater things than these. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.